0: Um, My guest this week is Dr. Jill Hart, who I consider to be one of the most informed people about the subject of food allergies and food intolerance. Uh, She's a real scientist, actually uh, an expert biochemist who started her career up the road from where I live in London at Hammersmith Hospital in London in 1987, getting her PhD at that point. And uh, later this century, so to speak, joined York Test, which is one of the most reputable laboratories who pioneered and initiated a lot of the research that exists uh, around the subject of food intolerance, which she has been very much involved with. She's an expert in food intolerance testing and also consumer health testing in general. So it's very good for me to have this opportunity to talk with you, Jill, Dr. Jill Hart. Welcome to my podcast.
1: Thank you, Patrick. And thank you very much for inviting me uh, along today to, to talk with you.
0: I mean, the first big confusion that exists out there is, um, is is really the difference between an allergy and a food intolerance. So could you explain that for
1: us? Um, it's a really good question. And there's an awful lot of confusion um, around around this subject, uh, a lot of people think they have allergies when they actually have food intolerances. Um, so if you think about the differences, you know, when you talk about allergy, you talk about that, that immediate response to a food. You usually know you've got an allergy, uh, a reaction to say peanuts uh, or shellfish, milk, eggs, um, and symptoms are you know potentially life threatening. This is a really serious condition, um, and You know, that is very different to what we see when we talk about uh, food intolerances. Um, Food intolerances take on a number of different forms. People people consider things like celiac disease as a food intolerance. Also things like lactose intolerance, reactions to your high FODMAP foods. That's your, your carbohydrates that you find really difficult to digest. And sensitivity to things like alcohol and histamine. Um, You know, lactose and histamine intolerances are are enzyme deficiencies, um, usually genetic. And so, you know, there are lots of different forms of food intolerance. What we focus on very clearly at York Test is that we measure... Um, food specific IgG immune reactions to foods, which we use to guide an elimination diet. These are often called non IgE. So they differ, differ from the allergy. They're the IgG rather than the IgE. They're often called non IgE immune reactions or sometimes confusingly <laughs> delayed allergy. And it's not surprising. People do get confused. So we, we measure the food specific IgG immune reactions to foods. Now, When people react via an IgG antibody, that reaction is delayed. It's subtle. It develops really gradually. So somebody might eat something, say, on a Saturday and may not have a reaction for a number of hours or even days. It may be even like the Tuesday that they start to see symptoms. Um, Typically not life-threatening, not necessarily even lifelong. I think we're going to talk a bit later about about the gut but I think you know by protecting yourself and looking after yourself you can sometimes reintroduce food um back into your diet and and tolerate it again so it's not like an allergy which is a more of a um developed into into adulthood is more lifelong so I mean, sure.
0: during, during yeah, during these all COVID times, we've heard a lot mm. more about antibodies. Antibodies mm. are things that our body, our immune system, specifically produces to target something. So, for example, the purpose mm. of a vaccine is to produce antibodies against the you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So, mm. what happens, uh, um, as I understand it, is that the immune system produces antibodies against foods. And there's a type of antibody, IgE, which causes a much more severe reaction, which we call an allergy. And there's a type called an IgG, which which uh, causes generally a less severe and not so immediate reaction, which is mm. what we call food intolerance. Is that correct? Uh,
1: that, that's absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, people sometimes think of antibodies quite rightly as protective. They are protective, but only to a certain degree, um, your IgG antibody, um, you know, is is comes in in four different subtypes, and each of those um, have been linked, you know, to uh, to certain diseases and conditions. So that you know, the immune system is a very complex thing. So when we're talking about protective antibodies, your your food tolerance, if you like, can easily be pushed into food intolerance and inflammation, and that's what we see when we're measuring our IgG antibodies.
0: And also, you may I mean, I, I'm actually allergic to dairy products, so I have an IgE mm-hmm. sensitivity, and that means that my reaction to dairy products. Fortunately, it's not life-threatening, but it occurs, uh, you know, within minutes, so it's very quick. It doesn't matter if I've avoided it for ages, and people get confused because you mentioned, for example, lactose intolerance. Some people mm-hmm. think the enzyme that lactase, which digests mm-hmm. milk lactose and mm. they're not necessarily allergic to dairy um, they just have an enzyme deficiency and that means that the lactose can't the milk sugar can't get digested and if it doesn't you know bacteria in the gut can that can cause loose bowels diarrhea bloating etc etc mm. that's not an that's neither an allergy nor a nor an immune based food intolerance but it's often no, called it, no it isn't sugar. yeah but,
1: so no, it isn't. And it's, um, people do get confused about that as well. I, I always think about it in terms of molecules because I'm a biochemist. Um, and you need quite a large molecule, you know, a protein-sized molecule to form an immune response. So it's your food proteins, if you like, that are either contributing to, in your case, your dairy allergy, producing an IgE, or your, you know, in my case, my, my dairy intolerance, which produces an IgE. Uh, with lactose, you're talking about sugar. Now, sugars can't raise an immune response, but they need to be digested somehow uh, by an enzyme, as you say, the lactase. So, if pe- people quite often uh, come up positive, uh, you know, to to milk on a, on a food-specific IgG test, and then go and buy lactose-free milk, and that is, <laughs> that isn't any help because that's just removing the sugar, not the the actual milk protein, which is the cause of their intolerance.
0: A couple of times I've heard people say I'm allergic or intolerant to magnesium, to vitamin C, to (laughs) sugar. And I said, well, that's not really possible. You've got to, it's got to be a protein of some sort, hasn't it?
1: It does. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, in the past, I've I've actually seen companies, which I will not name, um, claiming to measure uh, IgG responses to things like ascorbic acid and formaldehyde, which, again, is actually not possible. So it's... uh, it's an interesting uh, topic.
0: And which is more common, IgE allergy or IgG food intolerance? How many people suffer? Yeah,
1: well, from? allergies typically six to eight percent of children, um, and around two percent of the adult population um, suffer from allergies. And you um, know, you know, if you know, if you do suffer from an allergy, then we know that you need to go and see. Your GP and allergy specialists specialist support um, statistics on food intolerance is a, a, a much harder to to collect actually um, and you know it's estimated too that three to four times as many people think they actually have a food allergy um, than they actually do so a lot of people do think they have a food allergy when it's actually an intolerance um we've we've throughout the years. I mean I've been with Yorktis for 16 years and we've looked at various estimations and we think it's people with food intolerance is probably somewhere between 45 and 65 percent of the population if you think about it if you if you go to a you know a meet up you know when we can with a typical you know friends and family group you'll soon find those within that group that uh, are avoiding certain foods because they they disagree with them and, that, and that's where you know, food intolerances are are coming into play. Interestingly, as well, I think um, many people have food intolerances without knowing it. There's a lot of people that um, you know maybe have low energy, low mood, digestive problems, um, and actually just think it's normal for them, or think it's something to do with their busy lifestyle or stress, um, without actually realising that it's um, that it is a, it is linked to food, um, and I think that. A lot of people think they they're absolutely fine too that they they don't have any um, any symptoms and it's not until they actually remove the food from the diet they think oh actually my normal life could be uh, with a lot more energy which is great
0: great for them. What are the most common uh, symptoms of a food intolerance?
1: Well, for food intolerance um, symptoms, they um, really focus around the digestive system as you'd expect so things like ibs bloating um you know constipation diarrhea etc but also low energy low mood um skin conditions your acne psoriasis condition conditions linked to autoimmune diseases things like your um ulcerative colitis crohn's disease migraines and headaches um, as well. You know, and we, we collect a lot of data at York Test. And uh, these are typically the, the sort of symptoms that people come to us with. Um, and people that come to us describe their symptoms. So 38% of people that come to us describe their symptoms as very severe. Another third as severe, um, you know, and 80% of people that come to York Test have been suffering for more than a year with their symptoms. Um, so you know this, these these are things that are really impactful.
0: And generally, how long does it take for somebody to, to start to notice an improvement if they discover and eliminate their food intolerances?
1: Well, we, we conducted the largest study of this kind in, which we published with the University of York, back in well, it's eight, a long time ago now, it's 2007. Um, and we looked at 5,286 different uh, people that had gone through a food-specific IgG test through York test and um, been helped to change the diet um, and we found that typically um, 68% of those who saw an improvement um, actually saw a difference within about three weeks which is quite uh, quite remarkable and the, the other thing that you know the, the, the great thing about this study was that we asked people to introduce foods back into their diet that they'd eliminated after about three months um, and 93% of them actually got the symptoms back, which is absolutely a proof that, um, you know, your elimination diet and then what we call a challenge, you're challenging that food back to yourself to see if it is the actual food, um, which shows that it's, it, you know, it's an active and specific response.
0: Now, that's both very interesting and perhaps a little concerning because... There is this idea that uh, unlike IgE allergies, no. which I have, and it doesn't matter if I avoid dairy products for two years, I will still react, no. although I've learned how to mitigate that reaction. No. Uh, IgGs can be unlearned, uh, I believe. And yet this study was suggesting that most people aren't. They're still reacting to food. So how can you unlearn a food intolerance and... Uh, yeah, I know there's some that just don't go away.
1: There are, you know, and I think it's very much down to the individual. What I will say is that um, in order to sort of unlearn your food intolerance, you need to put in place a few sort of building blocks for yourself, really. You don't just remove the food from your diet, you also need to look at strategies to protect your gut, uh, really protect your gut moving forward so you may um you know we talk about the five r's removing the food replacing the food with something equally nutritious which is obviously really important Reinoculating your gut with you know probiotics something to rebalance your your gut microbiology um so that you're not sort of you haven't you're not kind of letting these larger food particles through into your bloodstream that your your body is then seeing as uh foreign and sort of going eek uh, reacting to and then you know repairing the gut and then reintroducing the foods back in and i think i think three months is probably a little bit too soon to do that although though people sometimes say that helps um certainly when you do reintroduce the foods it's often that you learn your tolerance levels so you find the balance of foods that's right for you i i have a dairy intolerance. Um, I know that I can have tea and coffee, you know, milk and tea and coffee um, now, but I wouldn't, you know, go near a block of cheese or ice cream or a big, you know, creamy pudding because I know that would impact me. So I think having removed, you know, dairy from, for many, many years, I can tolerate a little bit and I've learned my level. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's where you know, people, you know, take responsibility for their own diets and, and learn what's right for them after after realising what, what causes the problem in the first
0: place. Uh, that introduces the interesting notion of, uh, of the sort of degree of intolerance and also quantity, because as I understand wow. it, those IgG antibodies are floating around in your bloodstream. And if you eat a food, and, and also, I presumably, especially if you don't if you're not digesting foods especially well, if those proteins end up in your blood, uh, I understand that they they bind to the IgG antibodies, and it's when there's a sufficient quantity that the immune system is hyper-alerted. So is this how it works? And is that why sometimes you can get away with a small amount of a substance, but not a large amount?
1: I I think absolutely, I think it goes back to, you know, what we were saying earlier about the sort of the level, you know, you're thinking about an antibody as being protective. But I, I think that, you know, the there is, you know, an increased knowledge now around the immunology behind the IgG and how that can go on to, you know, promote inflammation. And so um, that I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example, actually. I think recently there's a study in um, that's, when we think, you know, I can give you an example. When we think about um, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, ulcerative colitis, um, you know, we think about that as as being, um, you know, something that is is uh, is helped by an IgG guided elimination diet. And I think what we we find there is that, and you know, this recent knowledge now that um, there's a really high positive correlation between. Um, some types of neutrophils, for example, that that actually link together with the food antigen and the the, uh, FC gamma receptors uh, and the antibodies and accumulate, those complexes accumulate, uh, you know, in the colon, in colon biopsies that were taken. Um, And it it shows that the direct link between what's actually going on in the immunology, the IgG levels have been pushed so far, (laughs) That they're actually starting to accumulate as complexes um, in these polymorphonuclear PMN neutrophils um, and actually then triggering um, the neutrophil activation and induced inflammation. Now, at very low levels, that may not happen. But you, once you're building these complexes, that's that can. I mean, that's just one example, but it, it's a very interesting recent study. Actually, it's just been published on this.
0: Yeah, I mean, this. I, I, what I do when I have a client that's got food intolerances, my sort of period of avoidance before re-challenging, re-testing is four months. And in the first month, mm-hmm. I, I give them a supplement which contains both probiotics and some glutamine, uh, which mm-hmm. helps to heal the gut, and also some digestive enzymes uh, of quite a wide range. But not not because I believe we all need digestive enzymes, but I want to ensure... In that month, as the gut heals, uh, that everything is broken down properly, so we're not getting excess undigested proteins getting through into the blood. And I, I also say you need to avoid or greatly reduce the use of alcohol and painkillers. Mm. Is that the right kind of? Stuff?
1: Yeah, I, I think when you think about how your gut is being impacted. Um, you know when you think about things that can impact the gut, and the importance of the gut as well to you know in your gut health um you know the gut microbiology and your gut health you know we've got a thousand different bacterial species uh, you know sitting in your gut you know 100 trillion organisms you know these are essential in there for us to survive and we don't want to destabilize them so what you're doing in terms of your gut healing protocol is absolutely right But on the other side of the coin, we need to think about things that can destabilise and do destabilise your uh, microbiology. So, so, you know, things like pollution, food additives, processed foods, foods that are poor nutritionally, and also things like painkillers, alcohol, and, you know, things like antibiotics and stress as well. Your, Your poor gut you know is trying to balance your your immune system 70% of your immune system is present in your gut um you're trying to it's trying to balance an awful lot of things and we we're starting to know an awful lot about which microorganisms are present in the gut but there is so much more to learn and actually very little known yet about um, you know the interactions, what what characterizes the interactions between those microorganisms in the gut and the, the breakdown and and assimilation of nutrients which they they inevitably do for us. Um, and I think you know this very fine balance means that um, you know there's there's an awful lot going on there. and it's, in, it's not surprising really that that you know this sort of breakdown and and gut destabilization, can result in things like, you know, your, your typical food intolerance symptoms, your IBS, low energy, headaches, you know, etc. That that can arise from this. You, you've got is absolutely key. And
0: how, how bad is alcohol uh, for promoting this environment for food intolerance? Is there a quantity that we can have? Some forms that are worse than others. And I think I would say the same thing mm. with pen kills. In other words, if someone, you know, has a bit of a binge and has a bottle of wine or whatever. Does that immediately mean that their gut becomes more susceptible in the next twenty-four hours?
1: I'm not sure how quickly it would be, and I think I think you know clearly, binge, binging alcohol is not healthy for your gut, um, and you know, and the gut becomes more permeable with alcohol uh, as it does painkillers. So, you know, you you can start a process whereby you know you've got a build-up of uh, alcohol intake, you know, a binge maybe. Um, and that, that can inevitably start to destabilise your, your gut uh, microbiology and, you know, the, the, your immune system there. So, you know, as we've always said, Patrick, everything in moderation. And, uh, you know, and I, I think that, that just counts here too.
0: Um, if you did drink too much uh, one night and maybe take some painkillers in the morning uh. and then tested your food intolerances, uh, would might you test worse in other words, is there a, is it wise to avoid alcohol for 24 hours before a food intolerance? I,
1: I think your IgG, your IgG antibody raises very slowly so you know it's a gradual build up over a period of time. and so I don't think you're going to see that immediate change um, to, your, to your IGG reactions just because of a one-night binge. It's not something that's going to happen that quickly. You, you you've got a very slow build-up of your IgG antibodies they you know they've got a very long half-life they're very stable they stay a long time in your blood um you know a period of months so it's not something that's you know you're not going to get great big changes in your IgG levels day to day um you know I I test my I do my IgG test every year and I you know I've always got I've always got milk antibodies there even though I've avoided it for quite some time because I have a tiny little bit Um, and you know your your IgG levels are really quite consistent actually from you know from day on, week on until you change your diet and you know we find people that for example um, you know they may take out dairy and they may replace it with soy milk and they might start feeling better and then they may you know plateau a little bit and, you know, this is what happened with me. And then I did my test a year later and found I was reacting to soya um, and, you know, made some of the changes as well. And I know what suits me now. I know that I have coconut milk. I know that I have hemp milk. And that suits me. So, you know, again, that that's, you know, something to sort of think about.
0: So what are the most common foods and drinks that people are reacting to? What's the sort of top six or so?
1: Oh, Patrick. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm always asked this question, and uh, you know, before I before I talk to you today, I actually went in and, and I do this quite often. Actually, I go in and review our you know the laboratory results that are coming out of our uh, our own wonderful laboratory, and uh, it always amazes me how individuals react so differently to each other. Every result is unique. My reactions to cows, milk, almonds, flaxseed, and, and egg white. You know, out of those people that come to us. Um, those who have positive reactions um, react to you know we test for over 200 foods react to about between five and eight different foods Mm -hmm. and I can't really say what the top six are because that if I said the top six for one person you know for me that would be very different to say you Patrick or somebody else so Mm -hmm. it's you know um, it, it can be all all sorts of things, and you know, as I say, we test for over two hundred di- um, reactions to over two hundred different food and drink ingredients, and um, you know, you will see people that eat more of a certain thing. You'll, you know, people do eat more dairy, do eat more wheat, um, gluten, etc., eggs. You will see more of those because people eat more of them and are more likely to then you know, twist and turn into a reaction. But equally important are those things like your, you know, your lentils, your carrots, um, you know, your fruits and vegetables and things that you perceive as being healthy, actually, but still contain protein and still have the ability to translate into a food intolerance.
0: So talking about wheat, you mentioned celiacs, which is a an intolerance to wheat, but it's, it's not an IgG. Or an IGE, it's slightly different, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is different. I mean, it's an autoimmune condition. So these, the antibodies that are raised there um, when you're you're reacting to gluten, uh, is when your gluten is combining itself with these antibodies, these anti-myil anti-transglutaminase antibodies, uh, which which are used in, in the you know in the celiac blood test, mm. um, and then they together. Translate into to a real, you know, a real horror uh, of a, a combination which can cause, uh, you know, lifelong problems and lifelong damage. So it's really, really important if you suspect you have celiac disease that you go and get tested by your GP mm-hmm. uh, and get a follow up test. And you know that 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 is it's a real serious lifelong condition.
0: So if you do test IgG. Um, positive, for example, on a, on a yolk mm. test, to, mm. to wheat. And I know your test tests both the gliadin portion, which is what, mm-hmm. what people react to most in gluten, and to wheat. Is it then worth having a celiac test just to rule that out? Well,
1: you know, years ago, people used to use um, gliadin-specific IgG as a celiac test, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't a very good one. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. why... We now use, you know, your 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 you know, your celiac uh, blood, blood antibody tests, um, but I think that you know the gliadin IgG is is very useful for non-celiac gluten um, mm-hmm. gluten sensitivity, which is which is a disorder in itself actually, mm-hmm. and something that is very very widely recognised by the medical community. The use of gliadin specific IgG. Um, for, you know, gliding intolerance. I, I don't think it necessarily translates that if you've got a gliding IgG, you've definitely got celiac disease. But if you're concerned about it and you think that you're reacting to see, uh, to, glu- to gluten gliding, you absolutely, you should go and get tested for celiac. Uh,
0: and we also hear about, I mean, one of the most sort of classic are eat right for your blood type, which is based on the idea that Uh, different blood groups respond to different lectins. And lectins are found in foods such as nuts and seeds and beans and lentils. There are all sorts of food that contain lectins. So some uh, there are some books, I'm thinking of uh, Grundy's book on eating a lectin-free diet. What is the connection between lectins and uh, IgG food intolerances?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. There's a lot about lectins around and they're fascinating molecules, absolutely fascinating. Um, but like any food proteins, you know, undigested lectins, or, you know, if you've got a permeable gut or, you know, a, a gut that's out of balance, you know, these, you know, lectins are, you know, they are a, a carbohydrate binding protein. So they are a protein. Um, so like any food proteins, they can still get through you know the in through into your bloodstream if you got uh, out of out of balance and promote a promote, uh, an immune response so you know my my view is that if you think you might be reacting to lectins rather than just taking them out of the diet blank blankly you know blanketly um, i think you know if you look at an igg reaction test that's going to be telling you if you're reacting to the lectin uh, the lectin protein um, and that in itself should be enough I'm, I'm always reluctant to, to well I'm always hesitant about um, diets that are very generalist even even specific to blood types actually because I don't I, I think they can you know they're not necessary for for most people and um, you know we have strategies in which we can actually say whether you're reacting to a, you know the lectins in your in your
0: legumes or grains etc so really lectins is another protein and rather than just and of course lectins are in just so many foods rather than just sort of mm. avoiding all those foods that are generally high in lectins sometimes they're in the skins of foods as well yeah. uh, uh, which nutritionally we like to eat uh, so if you have an igg test you will actually find out which foods containing those lectins you are reacting to? So it's 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 very specific for you. Is that the way it works?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it, it goes back to you know this personalised approach to um, you know to determining what what looks good for you as an individual.
0: And. I remember, I mean, when I first came into this field in the, uh, really in the eighties, we spoke about hidden or delayed allergies. I think we use that term. Mm. The, the point was people who were reacting to food, but not necessarily that day, often 24 or 48 hours later. And then gradually this understanding about IgG antibodies uh, came uh, into the fore. And that was you know, back in the 80s. But uh, And also, this has been considered by some members of the medical profession to be kind of quackery as such. Now, you've been at the forefront of research. How much research is there in relation to IgG food intolerances? How much scientific evidence is there that this is a, a really real and important um, issue in relation to health? And are you seeing a shift in opinion in the medical and nutrition research community.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, Patrick, it's it's a really good point. I mean, York test um, has been going 40 years next year, (laughs) you know, which is quite incredible. Um, We launched our food specific IgG test in 1998. And, you know, I think we're in a unique position in in this, uh, you know, home health testing market for food intolerances. Um, uh, because we've got, you know, we've got our own laboratory. Uh, we, we've got an, our own laboratory headed up by two great HGPC registered biomedical scientists. We've got accreditation to medical device ISO standard, um, the, the ultimate in quality control, really, because we've got, um, you know, we we do everything from manufacturing the ELISA test. So it's the enzyme linked disu- immunosorbent assay that the, the hospital standard test we use to measure the food specific IgG you know quality control of that right through manufacturing the tests themselves to doing the test to releasing the results to to working with uh, and supporting uh, people that are taking the test um, you know we're, we're really really proud of our team um, and we've been involved in many many independent studies and you know as you say you know when we when we started talking you know 16 years ago or so, um, you know, there weren't as many studies around. You know, we were seeing people get better, but without uh, so much of the evidence-based. Now there are many, many more independent studies. You know, most months um, studies are coming to the fore, and you know, there's there's great evidence that an IgG guided elimination diet can help can help people um what is you know what is still to to be you know to find out more about is is you know the immune system as we've talked about but you know since 1998 we have published our own data we've been totally transparent about our own data we talked already about the this, this study in, in 2007 over 5000 people and you know 76% of people on that study um told us that, you know, they felt better and that, you know, their symptoms got better. Got better. You know, we, as a company, you know, as Tests, keep having to prove to ourselves that we're being effective. And we do that by surveying our, our, our uh, you know, the people that take the test on a regular basis. We have a quality review board twice a year and we review our, our feedback data. And we consistently see um, that, you know, 80 81 82% of people feeding back that they are you know and these are hundreds of thousands of samples now Over you can imagine since 1998. We did we did um, we did take a big step last year and that we actually commissioned an independent study it's not been published yet uh, of 565 people uh, and it was totally separate uh, to us and I you know 565 people who'd uh, taken the York test and been supported through their elimination diet, And I waited at the end of December with bated breath for the results. And um, the results were that 82% of people fed back that doing the test had a positive impact on their health and well-being. And 91% were very pleased with the whole experience. Now, you know, that to me, after publishing back in 2007, getting a very similar result, um, just shows how consistent, you know, our data is and, and that we are still doing something that's very effective. But as I say, there's a lot of independent studies, hundreds of independent studies now that, that are gradually building um, that research base further um, to show that a guided elimination diet, which in the end is a, you know, I see it as a fast track to eliminate an elimination diet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, rather than starting with elim- elimination diet, it's taking one thing out of a time from your diet, um, you're starting with some apps, actual knowledge of where to start. So elimination diet, is, as, as you know, is, is virtually impossible to do. Mm-hmm. Um, taking one food out at a time, replacing it back in, you can never really get a grasp. I don't think I'd have ever determined my five or six foods, you know, by using that method. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a lot more knowledge now, um, a lot more knowledge and a lot more understanding about the way that IgG can translate into uh, intolerance and and further damage.
0: Yeah. So rather than just eliminating all foods and then bringing one in at a time, which is incredibly hard to do, or just guessing which your foods are, and possibly you may even guess right for some, but not others, and leave them in. So you never get to a baseline of no reaction. The point yeah. is, if you have something like your premium food intolerance test, mm. you you start with that information. And I want to just break that down because, in a sense, there are two parts to this. One is, uh, if you have an IgG-specific food intolerance test, like the premium food intolerance test, uh, th- the first thing is, is it accurate in the sense that if I test myself on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, or send in two different samples, will I get the same results? That's like part one. And the second part uh, is, is that the cause of my particular problems? So they're kind of two different questions. So first mm. of all, is this reproducible? I mean, that, that that's... Yeah.
1: I mean, as 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 I said, we've, you know, we have the ultimate in quality control through our laboratory because we have actually got our own laboratory and we're doing a blood test. Um, and so, you know, when you look, when we look at the sort of metrics we collect on a daily basis, mm-hmm. we're looking at the, you know, the levels of quality controls that we run with every single sample. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about running split match split samples through our laboratory several times a week, and we have a we have a, a key performance indicator, if you like, that we monitor on a monthly basis when our laboratory feeds back all those results to to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and myself to review, and that shows that we have greater than ninety eight percent reproducibility, which for this type of ELISA is is very good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in terms of your, you know, on your, if you're you're looking at reproducibility, then um, then that that's where we sit. Um, in terms of effectiveness you know as I've, I've already talked about the you know the sort of data we're collecting in huge volumes you know hundreds and thousands of data points each year and feedback from our people that are taking the tests and and that is in itself you know showing that this is an effective response I also think that if you look at the you know the demand for for food intolerance testing, uh, we may not have accurate statistics about how many people, you know, whether it's 45% or 65% of the population. But the demand for food intolerance testing, because people are then taking the test, being supported by our nutritional therapists through ch- changing the diet, and then going out and telling their friends and family, and you know that to us is, uh, you know, an ultimate positive feedback really when somebody really recommended what we do.
0: Now, one of the problems in this area, uh, and and you can maybe explain this better, but I understand that the sort of um, the 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 panel uh, of food proteins that you have and introduce a person's uh, antibodies to from their blood sample is not the same between laboratories. So, uh, there are some labs running IgG tests who have produced different results, not quite like, you know, having your blood sugar measured or your cholesterol measured. And I mean, I've, I try different labs to sort of get a sense Mm -hmm. of them. One, you know, nearly always shows rice, which is not Mm -hmm. a food that I seem to react to in others. So you get these sort of variable results. So what's that about? Between laboratories?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a few things here actually. Um, I think to start with, if we're talking about um, food specific IgG tests, there are a number of um, tests available that just measure IgG 4 only. Mm-hmm. Now, IgG 4 is about 4% of the IgG, and actually, it's IgGs 1 to 3 that are the ones that are particularly linked to symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, if you actually compare the York test with, you know, tests which measures all four types of subtypes uh, to mm-hmm. one that measures only one, you may expect to get a different result. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is the design of the ELISA test, that's the enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, is absolutely key. If you have an imbalance, as you say, the, the quality of the, the food allergens that we use in that test um, is absolutely key. But, I, you know, I've been developing my whole career i've <laughs> developed uh, you know f- f- food uh, um, sorry uh, uh, immunoassays um, for you know hospital standard for all sorts of different types of tests and that ELISA test design is absolutely key we um, we use a you know a proprietary blocker that actually you know blocks non specific binding because otherwise you will see things like your you know unusual foods that you know it may be over, being over reported mm-hmm. and you know in order to maximize reproducibility reliability test consistency and robustness that Eliza test design is absolutely critical and that might be re- why you know differences are seen you know unfortunately there aren't international standards uh, available mm-hmm. for comparing results but I think you know uh, 22 years 23 years of consistent you know data it speaks a lot with our own laboratory too Mm -hmm. I think there's something else to be said about um you know food intolerance food intolerance I'm using inverted commas although you can't see me doing that with my fingers um you know um food intolerance test types on the market because sadly and unfortunately um the food intolerance test market has been flooded with tests which have no basis in science at all and this has been you know sadly uh, an area of testing that's still under regulated something i've pushed for regulation for many years so there are a lot of hair tests you know it was actually a few years ago it used to be vega testing now it's hair testing for food intolerance which is where you put a sample of hair into a some sort of machinery that tells you with energy waves, you know, what you're reacting to, not just foods, but bacteria, viruses, metals, all sorts of things. And, you know, these things are have no basis in science, no better than chance at all. Um, and sadly, these are flooding the market at the moment and people are, you know, believing that they are working and you cannot measure these things from hair. <laughs> it's not possible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I like you, I mean, I've used different labs but i've used the york test quite consistently over the past 20 years i think and i do mm. a test myself every year uh, to find mm. out where i'm at and it's very interesting i mean yeast yeast as such is a food that uh, often comes up and it's been very helpful and i have sort of got two questions and one of you know is a little bit more sort of personal for me but um the would you generally say that a healthier person is likely to have a smaller number in other words if you have somebody with a lot of food intolerances and then do the right thing would you expect that number to decrease uh so yes that that question Uh,
1: yeah yeah i think absolutely and i think when, when we see people which you know we we you know as i say the average number of foods people react to is between about five and eight say out of the 200 but when we see people with a lot of reactions know our laboratory will highlight that out you know we will talk to that individual um and it's usually because of some you know quite severe gut dysbiosis and and that means that you know they need that extra level of support in terms of you know gut healing Mm -hmm. um and I think that's that's really important um you know in terms of uh, looking after that person yeah so I, I do think and then once that gut healing has been put in place, and, you know, I know that my dairy intolerance, my reaction to milk, uh, used to be incredibly high. We, we actually provide a scale, uh, with our results. So we've got a, you know, a red, amber, green, the red is, uh, high, high levels of reactivity. The green is normal reactivity. The, the amber is a borderline, but we also provide a number that goes with that, uh, with that result. So for example, uh, My number, you know, used to be up in the sort of 50s, 80s for, you know, it's now down at sort of the, you know, the 20 sort of level, you know, Mm -hmm. and I can, we can track that through, which is, you know, it's great for people to be able to do. Mm -hmm.
0: So, yes, the total number. So you can add up your numbers and then you find out what your broad Mm -hmm. intolerance is. I had one uh, uh, young man, had terrible gut problems, and he actually came up red in the highest reaction to every single food. I've, no. I've never seen that, but just there, there was no food that he could eat that he was not reacting no. to. So he no. had some major gut problems. So going no. a little bit close up on some foods, and I'll, I'll use my own as an example. So uh, yeast, well, you know, we've spoken a bit about wheat and uh, gluten. And I, I was absolutely fascinated by, what is it, 26 studies now on ancient wheat called kamut khorasan, <laughs> Uh, which actually reduces inflammation, it got me thinking that it may not be so much wheat that is a bad food or gluten that is a bad substance, but rather that maybe we've modified, hybridized, and thus altered the sort of genetic profile of wheat a lot because it's a very commercial food, while something like rye, you know, much, much less so. And then yeast seems to come up a lot. Uh, have you got any thoughts about yeast and why that would be so? Because obviously yeasts have been around you know since we've been around.
1: Yeah, i I, I agree with you about the wheat, I think I think the ancient wheats and the ones that we've been to typically evolved to eat, um, you know suddenly we we're seeing you know an evolution of that with with change going on and and the body can therefore see that as um reacting differently. Um, with, with your t- traditional yeasts, um, there's an awful lot about yeast in terms of, um, you know, the, the way the gut's interacting. And I wonder if it's just the yeast on its own or whether it's that in combination with other things. So, you know, yeast, um, as you say, hasn't hasn't been modified uh, over the years. It's, it's still traditionally as it was. Um, and so I'm wondering whether that in combination with you know the other things that we've talked about things like your alcohol clearly linked with yeast um, and um, and with you know other, other types of things that can impact the gut are, are working in combination you know you've also got then the you know the sugar sugar in diet which fuels yeasts. so you've got you know things like um you know, the sugary diet, which encourages yeast growth anyway. And then, uh, then, of course, the whole candida story too. So it's far more complex, than I think, than just looking at the yeast itself.
0: Mm. And then the other food, which for me is sort of interesting, as I do usually come up with a reaction to egg white, but it's, it's one food I've never noticed any symptoms from. And being kind of oriented towards a vegetarian or fishitarian type diet, mm. uh, eggs is quite an important you know, protein source for me. Yes. So I've seen that quite a lot. Um, what's your view about eggs?
1: Well, I think it's it's interesting that you say that you, you you know you don't get symptoms from a food. I think what what we do is we we give people a starting point for an elimination diet and. Mm-hmm. Uh, And for people to try those foods that are the highest reactivity for them. uh, And that's where, you know, people are are seeing a difference. Um, In terms of egg. they're clearly very antigenic. You know, they've they've got, you know, a a very strong uh, degree of being able to form an antibody. Um, And so, um, you know, it may be that for you, uh, you know, the antibodies are formed there, but they haven't then gone on to to produce, uh, you know, or... Been pushed into the into the intolerance boundary, if you like. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> well, there, of course, eggs are very important to the diet. And if you don't find that uh, you know eggs, eggs impact you, then there's you know no direct reason to remove them. But it might be something to be mindful of if you're eating a lot of eggs, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. So in other words, what we've learned is that if you have from a proper laboratory and York test absolutely leads the field, an IgG test. It is accurate, 98% accurate. It is going to measure accurately whether or not your immune system is producing IgG antibodies which cause food intolerances. Um, Not always uh, will they be symptomatic, but it gives you the information. It tells you the foods that are on the suspect list. And if you eliminate those foods and feel a lot better with whatever is your problem, be it digestive or migraines or, you know, inflammation or joint pains or asthma or skin problems, any, any of the wide symptoms associated with food intolerance. If you do feel better, then you, you know, you're in the right zone. And then after four months, especially if you've followed a strategy to heal the gut. And probiotics may help for a period of time, digestive enzymes, glutamine, not having too much alcohol, painkillers, and so on. Mm. You can then start to reintroduce the foods one by one and see what happens. I generally say, introduce a food, wait three days before you introduce another. Is that a pretty good summary of the state of play?
1: It's it's a great summary, Patrick. I think, Uh, you know, more than ever, you know, particularly with the pandemic, people have are looking to optimize their health to you know resolve current issues but also to protect themselves and reduce the risk of them being ill in future and I think that's where you know York tests have traditionally helped with food intolerance testing where we're working now with our you know our home health testing and looking to the future um, with you know accessible home health tests in general and you know the it's a it's a bigger picture too of 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 looking at nutrition but looking at health as well in general and how you know nutrition and diet and lifestyle can really help optimize your health and uh, you know and we can all feel empowered to change our health by by looking at what's going on inside of us you know whether it's our IgG antibodies or you know or, or other health tests. Uh,
0: well thank you very much for Sharing all your wisdom and also thank you for being at the forefront with York Test on really raising the standards and making sure that, you know, there's a reliable test. Do check out YorkTest.com, not only for its uh, food intolerance test, like the premium food intolerance, there's a very good junior food intolerance test. And by the way, you buy these kits and uh, they're sent to you, you prick your finger, you follow the instructions, send it back, and then get the results within a few days. Uh, Also, if you are concerned about having a food allergy as well, and not just a food allergy, you can have an environmental allergy. There's a combination food intolerance and food and environment um, allergy kit, so you can measure both. I am particularly grateful because for myself and all my clients, you give me a really good discount. And I'm very happy to share that with uh, with uh, anyone who's listening. Uh, the discount code is PH30. But you need to go to yorktest.com slash corporates, yorktest.com slash corporates, uh, to get that, um, that discount using the code uh, PH30. So, uh, Dr. Jill Hart, thank you immensely for being my guest on this month's podcast.
1: Thank you, Patrick. It's always a pleasure. And uh, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you. All the best.